You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Okay, we're going to be in the book of Job uh, tonight. Job 42 is where we're going to start. And so Job chapter 42, I'm going to invite you to stand once you find it, uh, if, if you're able to stand. And um, I know, again, it's different at home, but, but I think it's good to stay in the routine. And we're showing respect out of God's word, whether or not we're opening it here or opening it at home. And uh, we want to keep that routine as close to possible. Job, Job 42 and uh, this is at the end of Job, uh, at the end of the book, obviously, after Job had been through everything that he'd been through. And I want to notice a couple of things here that I think will be a help to us or could be a help to us during this time of life and during this season with the coronavirus and whatever everyone is facing. It's a truth that I really do think is universal and would be a help. Job 42, we'll read in verse 1, begin reading there and, and then go down through verse 6. Job 42, verse 1. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. Job has had a light bulb moment. In verse 5, I really think, declares What has transitioned for him in his mind? I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Something happened to Job in the process of the trials he went through that changed him. And I do believe that something can happen to us as we go through suffering, as we go through trials that can change us like it did Job. And that'll be the principle we're talking about tonight. And I've titled it, Job's answer was no answer. Job's answer was no answer. Let's pray and ask God to help our time. Father, we are coming to you, dependent on you. And I'm asking you that you'd help me to convey this clearly tonight. That you'd help it to be an encouragement. And uh, even if we don't see the end, Lord, help us to understand that the process is good for us. It's not always easy to get there, but Lord, I'm asking that you would open our, the, the eyes of our hearts even and help us to see clearly on a spiritual level tonight. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We live in an instant gratification society. Uh, I just heard a conversation going on about VHS tapes versus DVDs or, and, and how I'm not sure that kids these days would be willing to go through the trouble of fast-forwarding a videotape just to get to where they, were, they wanted to go or rewinding it to get back to the beginning. You know, we expect the Internet to be fast enough to load a page or 
download something just like that. We, we expect to go through a drive through and have our food within about 60 seconds, or it seems like a long time. We expect people to start, maybe this is like you, we expect people to start moving as soon as the light turns green, or else we get impatient. We expect people to answer their phones. If you carry a phone, we expect people to answer it. And that's kind of what leads into my thought here is that when you don't get an answer, it's no fun. No answer is no fun. When people don't answer, some of us maybe tend to get impatient. My kids can be that way. And, and they'll ask a question of myself or my wife and, and they want an immediate answer. But some questions just take time to consider before just throwing an answer out there. And, and uh, I mean, in the rare case, I will admit there are times where I don't hear their, their question or I'm not listening. That's very rare. Usually it's because I'm pondering what they've asked. Uh, it, you know, it's no fun when you don't get an answer. We've been trained to think that way. We want to know right now, and I'm going to call it tonight, I'm going to call it the Google syndrome. You know, it used to be that you could engage in a conversation or have a debate, if you want to call it that, with somebody else and, and talk about maybe you give your opinion, they give your opinion. You have a conflict of opinion. And, and that, uh, that conversation, it used to be that conversation could go on for hours or days or weeks or even months where you have an opinion, somebody else has an opinion, you're not sure who's right. But now, these days, as soon as you start saying something that someone else might disagree with or they have a different, differing opinion on something, it won't be long before someone pulls their phone out and what are they doing? They're Googling it. I mean, we fact-check each other right in front of each other's faces now. You know, I can't tell you how often... Uh, my, my wife and I will have a very important conversation um, like, you know, which has more calories, the Big Mac or the Whopper? You know, important conversations. And, and we'll talk about it, and then I hear a little beep, and, and then I hear Aaron saying, Siri, what has more calories, a Big Mac or a Whopper? Now, we don't really have conversations like that, but along the same, probably along the same lines. Siri, what has more calories? A Big Mac or a Whopper. So now, not only do I have a wife that's right virtually every time, she has another woman in her purse that she can go to for support at any time. And, and usually she is right. And I'm proven wrong very quickly. You know, we have been trained, though, to have Google syndrome. We expect answers right away. And I know that's a silly illustration, but in our culture, as Americans... That means that we have been trained to not like to wait. We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait on anything. We want our answers right away, but we also then do it spiritually. And there are things that we ask of God that we want immediate answers to. We've been trained to think that way, but that's not the way it works. I mean, actually, God doesn't owe us a quick answer, and really, God doesn't owe us an answer at all. Sometimes we get no answer. And we have to learn how to accept that and have that help us rather than frustrate us or leave us impatient. Because if there's anything that many of us are learning right now, it's that we sometimes have to wait on the things uh, that we're facing. We don't get an answer right away. We don't have a clear direction right away. We sometimes just have to wait. If you examine Job's life, 
The bookends of Job's life were great. And by that I mean, in the beginning, Job's life was great. Things were very good. And in the very end, in Job 42, Job's life was great. Things were very good. Uh, in the beginning, Job is blessed and he's enjoying life. Uh, we could go back to, to Job chapter 1 and let's look at it. Actually, let's look at a couple verses back at the very beginning. Job chapter 1. It says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. You realize that Job, it says he was perfect, which means he was complete. He was upright, which means he was righteous. He feared God. He had the right perspective of God. And he eschewed evil, which means he went around evil. He didn't walk up to it and touch it and, and smell it and get as close as he could. He went around it. Job is a godly, spiritual man that's living a life that pleases God. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. Look at his family. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually." This is a blessed man. He's got incredible wealth. He's got uh, all of these possessions and flocks and herds. And he's got a great family that he spends lots of time praying for. He's obviously done a great job raising his children to know and love God. That's Job's beginning. When we see Job at the beginning, that's where he is. But then we also can go then. So leave your place, mark your place here in Job 1. We're going to come back to it. But then go back to Job 42, and I want you to see in Job 42 how it ends for Job. But right, this is where we read earlier. We'll be down toward the end of the chapter, verse 12. Job 42, 12, it says, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 she-asses. God blessed him even more in the beginning, I'm sorry, more in the end than he had in the beginning. Look at verse 13. He, he had also seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Apoch. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. He has children again. He has basically another family. And his children, once again, they grow up, they're godly, they're more renowned even than before. And it says in verse 16, After this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons even four generations. Wow. You look at Job's life and you think, if all you saw was the bookends, if all you saw was the beginning and how good it was, and the end and how good and blessed Job was, you might think, wow, Job had a great life until you read the middle. And you realize that Job, the bookends were the exception. There's a, a big part of his life that things were terrible, awful. Because back in chapter 1, God allows Satan to come and disrupt Job's life. He comes to God and he's asking for permission to test Job. And look down in verse 9, back to chapter 1. I know we're going back and forth from the beginning to the end. Job 1, 
It says in verse 9, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. And, then, and basically, he, he says, But for, put forth thine hand now, touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Satan's trying to prove that Job's walk with God is shallow. He's putting Job to the test. In some ways, Job is on trial. He puts Job to the test and he says, now if you were to just stop blessing Job, he would curse you to your face. He said, Satan says, Job only serves you, God, because you've blessed him so much. So we could read down in verses 13, look at it, it says, so God gives him permission to touch Job's life. And it says in verse 13, there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made, a, made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Wow. I mean, Satan, God allows Satan to, to touch Job's life and harm Job, Job's life and take away his, his cattle and his servants and even his children. I mean, you talk about a terrible day. But look down in verse 21 and look at Job's perspective. It says, And he said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Wow. I mean, can you imagine having that perspective in that kind of a trial? So after all of this, then, and I'm giving you the rundown, there's so much we can stop and look at, but Satan comes back, and, he, and because Job maintains his, his right perspective, he comes back and he says, God, now, if you would touch his body, if you would actually hurt, harm him physically, I, he would curse you to your face. Look down in chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Has thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face." Satan says, if you would touch his body, if you would make him physically miserable, he would curse you. Verse 6, then the Lord said unto Satan, behold, he's in thine hand, but save his life. Notice that Satan can't do anything without God's permission. But God does give permission to Satan to touch Job's body. And so, as if it weren't bad enough emotionally, as if it weren't bad enough spiritually, and he wasn't broken already, now Job is physically 
miserable with, with boils and, and scabs, and he has to scrape it to clean it while he mourns and sits in ashes. And just when you think Job is at his lowest point, his wife comes to him in verse 9 and says, Dost thou still retain thy integ- thine integrity? Curse God and die. Man. So most of the book then is Job, and it's, it's about him, and these three, we'll call them friends, with air quotes today. And they're trying to make sense of all of it. And, and I, it's as much as they talk. I mean, they talk a lot in Job. It's like one monologue after another monologue. But if, as, as, as you read it, you realize, yeah, they're saying a lot, but there's not really any answers. They're not really giving anything concrete. And as a matter of fact, if you go through, it's interesting to go and just look at how many question marks are in their monologues. There's a lot of questions being asked and I haven't verified it myself, but I, I have heard or read that there are over 300 questions in the book of Job. It's an average of, of about 11 questions per page. And, and as much as Job's friends are acting like they have all the answers, Job's situation was so difficult that they couldn't help but still ask a lot of questions. They're acting as if they know, but they really don't. And there's a natural response when you struggle in that you ask why. Why? God, why? You ask why a lot, and you're hoping that God gives you an answer. And the vast majority of of the book of Job is trying to understand why. His friends thought that it was because Job was a sinner, that he had hidden sin in his life. And Job knew that wasn't accurate, it wasn't the case. But after waiting and waiting and waiting this whole time through the whole book and asking why and having questions, it turns out that all he can say in the end in Job 42... All he can say is, no answer. It's kind of like he's on his phone and and he's dialing, no answer. And he dials again, no answer. Question after question, no answer. As tough as it is for me to say it, Job never learned why. Now, I'm sure once he got to heaven, uh, he he had a, a better understanding. But we're not told in the book of Job that Job ever gets the answer. And it just doesn't seem fair. I mean, a whole book with Job's friends and, and himself asking why and discussing the reasons. But what's interesting is Job's story, it ends well, even though he never gets the, the answer he wanted. And that's what's interesting. That's what I want to point out tonight, is that Job ends up with more possessions and more renowned children and more blessings than he ever had even at the beginning. And there's a lot of lessons we could learn from Job's life, we could learn that, well, God's not obligated to answer our prayers the way we expect him to, and we need to come to terms with that. His ways are not our ways, and we can trust him and believe him, and whatever he sends our way is for our good and his glory, but he's not obligated to answer our prayers like we ask him to. We could learn, another lesson we can learn is that even when it doesn't seem fair, it's still better than I deserve, because I'm a sinner before God, and anything that I get that doesn't include separation from God in a place called hell is still better than I deserve. That could be a good lesson we learn. Another lesson we could learn is that any suffering that I endure doesn't compare to the suffering that Jesus Christ endured on the cross. And so, yes, it's hard, and yes, it doesn't make sense, and yes, it's not easy, but Jesus Christ went to a cross as as the sinless Son of God and took our sin upon Himself voluntarily. He allowed people that He created to mistreat Him and beat Him and nail him to the cross. He hung there naked for the world to see. And I would never presume to downplay someone's suffering, 
But when you consider the fact that Jesus Christ put himself in a position to voluntarily and willfully suffer in that way, it should make us think, we have a high priest that understands where we're coming from. And that could be a good lesson for us to learn through the life of Job, is that even if I suffer um, and I endure hardships, it doesn't compare to what Jesus Christ went through for me. Good lessons. But the most important lesson that I believe that Job talks about at the end of his life or the end of the chapter or at the end of the book, it comes out in chapter 42. And he, he does, he's not talking about other lessons. He's talking about the fact that he never gets an answer. He never heard why. And even though his life turned out better at the end than it was in the beginning, he couldn't look back and pinpoint, okay, here's what happened. Now I understand. Now I get it. And yet still, through it all, we find him appreciating the process that he went through. Let's look again at Job 42, verse 1. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. So he starts by basically pointing out that there's a big difference between him and God. And he's saying, yes, I know what I am and how limited I am, but I know that God is unlimited. And he says, who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. He said, basically, I'm ignorant and I didn't even know what I was talking about. I wasn't telling God anything he doesn't already know. He's starting to realize after this process, he's starting to get a clearer picture of God. He says, here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. See, through all of this, Job has come to an understanding of who he is compared to God, that he has no knowledge and God has all knowledge, that he has no ability and God has all ability. And through the process, we find that Job comes down to the end of it. And he's not saying, look how good I am. He's saying, no, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now, mine eye seeth thee. Now I fully, at least as much as a human mind can comprehend, I see God for who he is. I have through this process, even though I didn't get an answer... I have come to terms with the fact that God is great and I am not. God has knowledge and I do not. God has power and I am limited. And through all of it, he basically says, I used to have somewhat of a secondhand knowledge of God. I, used to, I, I just heard about him before. But now it's different because I've seen him for myself. It's kind of like the Grand Canyon you've ever stood at the, the, the edge of the Grand Canyon, and my family and I, we've been there, um, uh, I've been there a few times. I took the family there a couple years ago. You know, you, if you've ever tried to explain or describe the Grand Canyon to somebody, you can do it pretty accurately. You can explain it, and people appreciate it. But until you go up to the edge, and you stand, and you see the vastness for yourself, you cannot really explain the Grand Canyon to anybody. Until you stand at the base of a mountain, uh, one of my favorite places anywhere, the Teton Mountains there in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And until you stand and take that site in, you can explain it all you want, but you really can't 
fully help someone to experience it. Well, that's what happened to Job. See, when Job finally saw God for himself, it brought everything else into focus. You see, even though Job got a no answer, he saw things more clearly than he ever had because he saw God for who he is. When we see God for who he is, the whys are no longer nearly as as important because the change that God makes in you personally, it suddenly becomes all you need to make that trial worthwhile. The faith that is built in you through the relationship that you build with God, the trust that you develop in God, the closeness that is formed with your Father. See, here's what happens when we let God do His work through a difficult time, is you get to enjoy the result without knowing the reasons. You get to enjoy the results without knowing the reasons. What do I mean by that? Well, the time that you get to spend trusting God and and seeking God and calling out to God, the time that you spend in closeness with God, that begins to change us. And and the result is that we become more like God whether or not we know why we're going through what we're suffering. When we respond correctly and we choose to focus on God through all of it, the change that's produced in us basically does away with our need to know why. You, You don't know why. You don't get a reason. You don't understand. But in the process of struggling, you get a glimpse of God. And folks, that changes us. That's like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. It's something you can't explain. And you don't know why and you don't have the reasons. But His sustaining grace becomes real to you. And that changes you. And His limitless love becomes obvious. And that changes you. His never-ending strength becomes obvious to you. And you realize, I don't have to carry myself. His arms are more than adequate of carrying me through whatever I'm facing. And you may not get the answer that you want. And it may not become clear to us, but the change that is produced in us makes the struggle worth it. The greatest result of a trial is when we grow closer to God, even if all we get is no answer. See, what we can learn from Job is this very important take-home, and that is that a difficulty is not God's way of punishing me. It is God's way of changing me. A difficulty is not God's way of punishing me. It is God's way of changing me. If you can view your difficulties through that lens, it will transform your response the next time you face something that's difficult. Folks, if you want to come through life and even this present circumstance this present challenge, with your faith intact, you have to start viewing the tough moments differently. See, we have the wrong perspective on struggles. See, we think that our toughest moments are opportunities for God to change our circumstances, but that's not always the case. And we think that our toughest times are are ways for God to bless us more while we're down here, but that's not even the case all the time. We think our toughest moments will someday all make sense at the end, like it did for Joseph at the end of Genesis. I'm sorry, that's not the way it works. We think that our toughest moments will end us end up with us getting the most logical answer, but it may not. The only thing you can be sure of this is, sure of is this. God will give you an opportunity to be changed. If you're paying attention, somehow he makes himself more real than ever before. 
And if you'll give him the opportunity, he'll make you more like him. And you, like Job, can say, yes, the struggle was tough and the trial was difficult and I don't fully understand all of it, but through the process, I used to just hear about God. But now, I've seen him for myself. It's kind of like a diamond. You know, the pressure doesn't make sense to the lump of coal. But in the end, a diamond is far, worth far more value than a lump of coal. Folks, you may get a no answer, but you trust what you know about God. He loves you. And he understands what you're going through. And he has a reason, even if he never even tells you. And if through the process you see him clearly, it will change you. See, the end of the struggle may not be the answer you're looking for. But if you'll let God be God, then the growth that he, ha- that he works in you through it can make it all worth it. A few weeks ago, I was trying to change an, uh, an airline ticket. And because of a change in my travel plans that was outside my control, I, I ended up not using, being able to use the first half of a ticket um, of a flight. So my, my, my flight out, uh, I wasn't going to be able to use, but I was going to try to use the flight back. And the first problem with that is if you don't use one leg of the trip they cancel the whole itinerary. They cancel your whole flight. The second problem is airlines are notoriously bad about changing flights uh, without charging you an arm and a leg to do it. The third problem I had was the week that I needed to make the change was the week that the coronavirus blew up. And so everybody was calling all the airlines and everyone was changing flights and and, and so I prayed and I, I asked the Lord to help it to work out uh, because I didn't want to get where I was going and then cancel the flight that I originally had and me not be able to get back to where I needed to be here at home. So I prayed. I asked God that he would work, work it out. I picked up the phone and I dialed. And of course, I didn't get a real life person. I just got an, a, a voice, a, an answering machine or a voice message, not an answering machine. That's old school. I got an automated message on the other end, and, and it asked if I wanted a call back. It said, due to a high volume of callers right now due to the coronavirus, it literally said that, um, then we'll have, there, you will be delayed. Would you like a call back? I said, yes. Then it said, well, due to the high volume, you'll receive a call back in approximately 11 hours. 11 hours. Which means they would call me back at that point, it, was, it would have been around 1 or 2 in the morning. So me, I'm thinking, I'm never going to get a call back. I mean, yes, I'll type my number in, but I'm just running out of time. This could end bad. They're not going to call me back. But, what I, but I decided I'm going to leave this in the Lord's hands. I prayed about it, so I typed my number in and said, yes, I'd like a call back um, in 2024. Feel free to call me back. No, I typed my number in and I just said, Lord, would you take care of this? There's nothing I can do. So that night I went to bed and I fell asleep and at about 1230, my phone rang. So it was about nine and a half, I think, or 10 hours later, my phone rang. And I, orig- I usually don't hear or answer those in the middle of the night if I've been asleep. But I, I woke up 
and I realized it's not a number that I recognize, so I picked it up thinking maybe it's the airline, and sure enough, there's a woman on the other end of the phone, she's with the airline, and within just a few minutes and a few dollars, it did cost me a little money uh, to, to pay some extra fees, but literally like $11 is all it cost. So within just a few minutes and a few dollars, she changed my ticket, and I went right back to sleep. It was a miracle, a miracle in customer service. So what does that have to do with Job? Well, I had to trust the process. See, I didn't want to wait. I didn't want to wait 10 minutes, much less 11 hours for an answer. But if I had said, no, I'm not going to give you my phone. I'm not going to type in my number. I don't want to call back. I don't want to have to wait on this. Then I would have missed out uh, on the change that I needed. See, we have to trust God's process. Do we want to wait on him during a trial? Is it easy? No. Do we want to wait? No. Does it always make sense? No. But if we refuse to let the process play out in our lives, we will miss out on the change that God wants to make in us. Does he guarantee that he will even give us a clear answer? No. But he's less interested in information than he is in transformation. He's less interested in us having full knowledge as he is in changing us to be more like him through the process of waiting. And we may never get an answer, but we can go to sleep. We can rest in the process. And if through it all we see him more clearly, then us walking more closely to God is the best result we could ever hope for. And folks, assuming this all comes to an end, the worst tragedy in all of this would be that God's people refuse to trust God's process. That we might miss out on growing closer to God through the difficulty. And that we would fail to enjoy results because we don't get reasons. My question to you tonight is this. What step of growth does God want you to take during this present season this present trial, this present challenge. What does God want to change in you? What's the process that he's trying to work in you? If you refuse to trust the process, you will miss out on the benefits you could have enjoyed in a time like this. And you say, well, what is there to enjoy? Well, here's what you can enjoy. In the process, you can see God for what he is. And you can have a better understanding of his power and a clearer vision of his knowledge and a more, a, a more deep understanding of his love for you. We may never see the reasons and we may never fully understand until heaven, but if we will rest and accept that God wants to change us through the process, with or without the reasons, folks, then the struggle will have accomplished what it was meant to. Trusting God and letting him work in us changes us. That's all the reason we need. But if you'll grow bitter instead of allowing God to make you better, then nothing positive will come from this. You don't get the reasons and you also won't get the results. Sometimes you just get, it's no answer. But it doesn't mean there's no point. The point is letting God work in you to make you more like him. Because the bigger the trial the more opportunity to grow 
into God's image. And right now, you have an opportunity to change spiritually more than ever. To take a step of growth. Don't get through this season and realize you'd never let God do his desired work in you. 2 Corinthians 4 came to mind, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. It's four verses in 2 Corinthians 4 that I think sum up what Job went through. Paul wrote, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are, are seen, are not seen, are eternal. And Job said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. If we can take our eyes off the circumstance and move them toward the Lord, then he can do something in us to transform us from where we are and who we are now to what he wants us to become. But if we don't view that properly, we'll miss out on what God might want to grow us in through the coronavirus. I don't know what he has for you. I don't know where he wants to take you. I don't know what step of growth he wants you to experience, but I do know this, he wants to change you. He wants to transform you. And you may not ever get reasons, but it's still possible to enjoy the results of his work. And when this temporary life is over, you'll have eternity to enjoy the way that God used a struggle to change you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We're going to have the instrument play. Ms. Catherine's going to come and play the invitation song. And I'm asking you to submit to God. I know this can feel a little bit heavy tonight. It wasn't my intention. My intention was to be hopeful. And that even if we don't ever understand the situation, God can provide a transformation. We may not have the information, but he can have a transformation. But we have to be willing to let him be who he is and grow us through it, even if we never know why. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.